Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. I'm also active on Twitter and Substack, so I hope to see you there. Are virtue signaling sanctions on non-woke countries the next front against the U.S. dollar? Today, Axios reported a dramatic escalation in the weaponization of the U.S. dollar as the Biden administration threatened sanctions against Uganda over its LGBT laws. Also today, Bloomberg's out with an article pulling out all these stops to attack de-dollarization as a, quote, exercise in futility, wishful at best, and as a, quote, ill-disguised attempt to overthrow the rules-based world order, by which they mean America's global domination, which feels pretty Orwellian as far as language goes. Bloomberg kicks off admitting that the BRICS anti-dollar coalition already represents one-fifth of world trade, one-quarter of world GDP, and almost one-half of world population, with dozens of additional countries now clamoring to join. Bloomberg also admits that Biden seizing Russia's sovereign dollars over Ukraine was, quote, overreach which is quite an understatement considering that is the main reason that dozens of countries are clamoring to join the China-led BRICS anti-dollar coalition. Still, according to Bloomberg, it's an exercise in futility because anything that hasn't happen can never happen. Their main evidence is a chart showing that the dollar buys about as much foreign currency today as 50 years ago, which has nothing to do with dollar dominance. It simply means other countries were inflating at the same rate until recently, which we all knew. What they ignore is actual plunging international usage of the dollar. I've talked about this in recent videos, but Exhibit A is from Morgan, former Morgan Stanley analyst Stephen Jen. By the way, I'm literally reading this off a Bloomberg article from April called, quote, de-dollarization is happening at a stunning pace. Anyway, Jen found the dollar share of global reserves collapsed from 73% in 2001 to just 55% by 2021 before dropping off a cliff after the Russian sanctions, dropping eight points to 47% last year. Meanwhile, the dollar share in trade is plunging almost as fast, now down to just 40% of world trade settled in dollars. That is down from 52% less than 10 years ago. A few weeks ago, I talked about how the Russian sanctions backfired, putting every country on notice that the dollar is now a political football that can be rug-pulled anytime the U.S. doesn't like your policies. At the time, I speculated that countries might fear that not only their foreign policy is in the crosshairs, but their domestic policy, like, for example, their stance on LGBT. Right on cue, yesterday the administration threatened sanctions against Uganda for their new anti-gay law, starting with cutting them off trade programs representing hundreds of programs, and presumably escalating from there. The administration has also put similar pressure on Japan, raising domestic complaints about bullying. Now, pair this escalation of the weaponization of the dollar over LGBT policy, of all things, with Washington's debt ceiling green light to $50 trillion of debt by 2030, and it means the dollar is increasingly going from global safe haven to pariah asset with neither strong fundamentals nor security. All with an aggressive China only too happy to help accelerate the decline and an administration that only knows how to throw more gasoline on the fire. With trillions in college loans set to resume payments in September, we are seeing the mainstream media swing into full protect 
the free journalism degrees mode, even as other data is showing that, in short, millions of borrowers are deadbeats who should probably get a job. This week, The Economist ran a story asking if the student debt moratorium was a mistake, since despite handing millions of high-earning people $15,000 each, costing you roughly $200 billion, those millions of beneficiaries did not actually reduce their debt. In fact, they went deeper into debt, taking on $4,500 in new debt, compared to non-beneficiaries with private loans. That included $2,000 extra of credit card, mortgage, and car loan debt. So these people got $15,000 from you, the taxpayer, and apparently they blew it all and then took on even more debt compared to people who did not get the handouts. This should not have been surprising. Even before the pandemic, only half of college loan borrowers were actually repaying. A quarter were taking advantage of hundreds of deferment programs the left uses to reward its foot soldiers, things like government jobs or nonprofits. Another 25% or 10 million people were in delinquency or default. Now, if between a quarter and a half of college grads are deadbeats, maybe we're educating the wrong people. My unscientific guess is that the dentists and computer scientists are paying their loans, while theater and gender theory majors are probably not. Standing up for this army of educated deadbeats, CNBC ran a long piece profiling some of the tough choices they face. They warned darkly that this army of educated deadbeats is bracing, their word, to start paying loans back, averaging $350 a month. Now, given the average college grad makes over $65,000 per year, between 50% and 100% more than non-grads, that comes to about two hours a week. Of course, CNBC was going for the heartstrings, so they humanized the story with real people. And the best they could find was a high school principal who earns hundred grand a year and is panicked at $600 a month, Quote, where is that going to come from? She asks darkly, perhaps forgetting about the 100000 Next up was a public school teacher who can technically come up with the extra money, but, quote, doesn't believe he should have to because he's a teacher. Incidentally, public school teachers make far more than the general population, plus they get three months vacation and very generous retirement benefits. Unions intentionally hold down the starting salaries as a prop for negotiations with media dutifully playing along. Uh, moreover, given public school teacher performance, I talked about this last week, many school teachers probably shouldn't be earning a salary at all. The left has turned universities into finishing schools for their army of activists, and student loans have become the main siphon, sending hundreds of billions a year from your pocket into these spawn points of the revolution. So what is the solution? Easy. Get government out of student loans. In fact, get government out of universities altogether. Company R&D will fund true innovation, as it always has, and the revolution dries up. The useful majors, the dentists, the doctors, the scientists, and the programmers borrow on their future incomes, while the theater majors and gender studies majors will sadly have to indulge their hobbies on their own dime. Of course, that will not happen until voters make it happen. Tucker Carlson is back, and he is trouncing legacy media. Is the mainstream media done? Yesterday, Tucker released episode one of his new show on Twitter, kicking it off with the war on truth by legacy media's purveyors of lying, pomposity, smugness, and groupthink. Tucker's debut was watched 57 million times. That's roughly 20 times 
his old audience at Fox. It's almost three times every single show on Fox. In fact, Tucker got 13 million more views than every single tracked cable TV show on air on any network combined. So for all the privileged mainstream journalists and talking heads who celebrated when Fox canceled Tucker, he just got 20 times bigger. And he did this with a camera and a mic in a cleaned up barn. In other words, the legacy media is done. I know this partly because I've been on the air doing these videos for three months now, and they already get as many views as a TV show. Some have gotten millions of views with also a camera, a mic, in a cleaned up whatever this is. So yes, the legacy media is done. We are on the cusp of a revolution in citizen journalism. And I give full credit to Elon Musk for suffering the slings and arrows, the legal threats, the regulatory threats, the physical threats, to stand up for free speech. Two presidential candidates now have announced on Twitter instead of mainstream media, DeSantis and Kennedy, the movie What is a Woman was watched 175 million times in a single week despite a near-total censorship campaign. By the way, the top movie of all time, Titanic, was seen 383 million times in theaters. So what happened? Simple. Media threw away their gatekeeper monopoly by so obviously throwing away their objectivity, their claim to expertise and authority, that millions of people, in fact, hundreds of millions, could finally see the fraud. Gallup's most most recent numbers say just 16% of Americans now have high confidence that newspapers are telling the truth. For television news, that's just 11%. By the way, trust rises with formal education, suggesting that formal education makes you dumber. For a hundred years now, starting with the left's yellow journalism in the 1890s, mass media has been frog-marching the American people, really the world, to the left. Along the way, driving left-wing capture of public schools, universities, of the government itself, converting them into an assembly line, moving our entire society towards an open-air prison, with each generation more totalitarian than the previous. Just yesterday, a poll came out finding one in three of Gen Zers literally want government surveillance cameras in every home to stop illegal activity. They made a movie about that. We are becoming totalitarian, and media is a key driver. The fulcrum, the pivot point back to liberty, is free speech. Citizen journalism, the democratization of the truth, of the narratives. It's how we connect the dots so people can question, so they can fight what's being done to them. And I'm thrilled that Tucker is back in the saddle. A few days ago, the California Senate passed a bill to make it illegal for store employees to confront shoplifters. Meanwhile, San Francisco headquartered Old Navy announced it is closing its San Francisco flagship, joining Walgreens, T-Mobile, Whole Foods, Amazon Go, and Nordstrom's in fleeing the city. Asked why Old Navy was leaving its hometown, one store manager said shoplifters hit his store, quote, at least 12, 14 times a day. We were hit 22 times in the last two days. At this point, stores in downtown San Francisco are just waiting until their lease is up and then they are gone. 
which sucks if you're a chain store. It really sucks if you're a mom and pop with your life savings at stake. Adding fuel to the fire, one of California's largest insurers, State Farm, last week announced it's exiting the entire state for business and property insurance, joining insurance giant Allstate, which already left six months ago. State Farm cited the, quote, challenging reinsurance market, meaning they can't get anybody to insure their California policies. This means thousands of Californians are now going without insurance, going naked in the industry lingo. Note this locks you in. You can't sell your house since most banks won't write a mortgage on an uninsurable property. Fortunately, the city of San Francisco is on the job. They just released a glitzy $6 million tourism campaign. Literally the next day, the two biggest hotels in the city went bust, citing, quote, street conditions, almost as if they didn't think the tourism campaign would do anything. Beyond hotels, the newspaper Guardian recently wrote about, quote, empty skyscrapers in San Francisco, while the main commercial drag, Market Street, is festooned with for sale or lease signs. San Fran's office vacancy rate has now hit 31 percent. Pre-pandemic, it was 4 percent. A recent study from Berkeley found cell phone traffic is actually down 70 percent since pre-pandemic. Note that downtown accounts for 75% of the city's tax base, almost half of sales tax and 95% of business tax revenue. So if downtown becomes a ghost town, San Francisco runs out of money. It defunds the police whether it wants to or not. By the way, the city's solution is not to bring people back. It's to convert downtown office buildings to, wait for it, public housing. Over 11,000 units, according to one plan, which should do wonders for bringing back that downtown tax base. In fact, one local activist group, Shaping San Francisco, wants to skip the humans altogether and literally knock down these skyscrapers. Deconstruction, they call it, since tearing things down is a bit of a fetish on the left. A 2021 paper by a trio of business professors predicted a post-COVID urban doom loop for U.S. cities as businesses leave, driving more crime on empty streets and lacks less tax revenue to hire police to deal with it. It turns out cities didn't have to wait for the doom loop. They're making it themselves. On the bright side, urban voters who keep electing these clowns are the first ones to feel the pain. Some of them are waking up, snapping out of their warm utopias to demand city officials actually arrest criminals and clear out open-air drug markets. Sadly, they are not waking up fast enough, going by recent elections in Chicago and New York. So expect more dying cities, more failed businesses, more property crashes, bankrupt hotels, and if they keep going, more deconstructed cities. Central banks worldwide are on a gold-buying spree as Joe Biden continues weaponizing the U.S. dollar. But China stands out, hoovering up historic quantities of the yellow metal. So what is China planning? Yesterday, the Gold Telegraph reported that central bank gold purchases have mopped up almost a quarter of worldwide gold production this year as a parade of central banks retreat from the dollar. The standout buyer has been China. Two days ago, its central bank announced it had bought another 16 tons of gold in May, bringing its total purchases to 144 tons since November. That would take China's total gold holdings to roughly 2,100 tons. Where did the money come from? Well, China has also sold off almost a quarter of its U.S. government treasuries since 2021, down from $1.1 trillion to $850 billion. So why is China getting out of the dollar? There's two interpretations, the conventional story 
and the nuclear story. The conventional argument says China's doing what everybody else is doing, preparing in case the U.S. weaponizes its own dollars against it, as Biden did with Russia and is now threatening to do to more countries over, of all things, LGBT policy. If so, the solution is very easy. Put the grown-ups back in charge who understand that reserve currency is a bigger question than retail politics. But then there's the nuclear story that China is amassing gold in preparation for a gold-backed currency. In fact, both China and Russia have flirted with gold-backing, but I don't think China would do it with their own currency, the yuan, because a paper yuan lets them underprice their exports, plus they can inflate at will. No, the idea is for China to stand up a fresh currency, perhaps tied to the BRICS anti-dollar block, and back that with gold. Consider this is how countries use the dollar today. So Mexico or Korea don't use the dollar at home. They use their own cheap currency, and then they use the strong dollar as a trade rail. It's the best of both worlds. Cheap exports, strong rails. If China did a gold-backed brick, it would be an absolute game-changer for the dollar because it would wipe out the U.S. dollar as a store of value currency, which is the overwhelming reason that foreigners hold dollars in the first place. They're solid and they're liquid. Gold, of course, is much more solid than the dollar. The dollar has lost 85% of its value against gold in the past 20 years. The problem is gold is not very liquid. A gold-backed brick's would be different. It would be a paper currency that is good as gold. Now, it wouldn't happen overnight, of course. People wouldn't immediately believe that it's really backed. But after a few months of people actually trading paper for gold, they would start to believe. One by one, they would flip trade invoices, central bank holdings, private bank holdings, investment flows. In three to five years, the currency world would be unrecognizable. Final point If, in fact, China wants a gold-backed brick, how much gold do they need? Well, before Nixon, the U.S. only had about 2% gold cover, so $2 in gold for every $100 in M2. That means China's 2,100 tons could, in theory, cover a new currency worth about $6 trillion, which would make it the world's fifth largest currency just after the Japanese yen. I do not know if China's got the balls to do this, but if they do, our clowns in chief will not know what hit them. Are the Canadian wildfires proof that the global warmers are right and we've only got seven years to live? There is a trillion dollar crisis industrial complex waiting to turn any extreme weather event into yet another trillion in green energy handouts. At the moment, they are working hard, those Canadian wildfires. Canada's prime minister warned we'll see, quote, more and more of these fires because of climate change, while Chuck Schumer darkly intoned that, quote, we have a lot of work to do to reverse the destruction of climate change. By a lot of work, Chuck means you will have to pay a lot of money and perhaps eat the bugs. Now, for perspective, in 1780, Canadian forest fires blocked out the sun for two days across New England. These things happen. So what is causing these current fires? At the moment, it's partly random. A light winter and the long-standing El Nino that moves rain around, combined with lightning strikes and arson that are facts of life and forestry, all accelerated by bad policy. Governments that don't clear underbrush the way timber companies do, which makes fires a lot worse. Canada's own numbers show this. The Canadian National Fire Database shows that over the past 40 years, the number of forest fires in Canada is actually declining so much for global warming, yet the area burned is either steady or increasing. Government, take a bow. 
Why are governments so irresponsible? Partly because governments are bad at doing things, partly because it costs money they'd rather use for, say, diversity outreach, but also because governments take over perfectly productive land in the first place because of the left-wing fetish with eliminating humans from the earth. Brush management, alas, involves humans. By the way, we see this play out almost every year in California as lightning strikes, arsonists, or homeless encampments turn small fires into world-consuming conflagrations because government didn't clear the bush. Of course, they pump those fires also for yet more green handouts. What is new in the Canadian fires is that they are on such a scale. Canada is big and it's full of trees, meaning the fires have already burned an area the size of Maryland— that's half a Nova Scotia if you use the metric system. Apparently that scale revealed a brand new problem we didn't even know we had, which is that solar doesn't work when there's a lot of smoke. Bloomberg reports that solar panel output all across the Northeast U.S. has plunged by, according to Bloomberg, more than 50%. Thank goodness our energy grid isn't fully solar, since a more than 50% cut in energy would mean rolling brownouts and cutting off the non-essentials, meaning your house. I'd like to pause and savor the irony here that misguided green policy, failing to clear brush, has exposed yet another flaw of yet another misguided green policy that solar panels don't work when it is smoky. The article quoted a spokesman for a Massachusetts power company saying, quote, there is some learning in real time happening. Perhaps they could have knocked out the learning before spending trillions of dollars on energy you can't count on. Even Bloomberg granted that, quote, as solar becomes a bigger part of the power mix, grid operators will need to prepare. So I've got a wild idea how to prepare ditch the solar. Of course, they won't. Free taxpayer money is just that good. Is the Fed about to move the goalposts and make policy changes to lock in high inflation forever? A few days ago, Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's and a reliable vending machine for regime takes, made a push for raising the Fed's inflation target from 2% to 3%. The Fed itself has long argued for this, putting out paper after paper. Paul Krugman, of course, is all for it. Even respected predictors like Michael Hartnett now think they could change to 3% soon. Why would the Fed actually try and raise inflation? Isn't their job to fight it? The key is the Fed pretends to fight inflation that magically spawns in the economy. I profiled a recent paper co-authored by former Chair Bernanke that scoured the headlines, blaming inflation on everything but the Fed, by the way, the Fed did the same thing in the 1970s, pretending they had nothing to do with inflation. Instead, they blamed overpopulation, the world running out of resources, including oil. In fact, the Fed and the Fed alone is the precise source of inflation. They do this partly by printing their own money, literally typing made-up dollars into Excel sheets and using that to buy up assets, mostly government debt. This accounts for about a quarter of inflation. The other three-quarters of inflation, of money printing, the Fed actually licenses to commercial banks by promising them a standing bailout called the, quote, lender of last resort function. This lets banks effectively Xerox deposits and lend them out over and over, called fractional reserve banking. 
diluting the dollars yet more. This franchised money printer has, over the past 20 years, printed up almost 15 trillion of new dollars, or 750 billion per year. Keep in mind, nobody created anything for those dollars. They may as well be counterfeiters that stole 75% of the buying power of the real dollars that people actually work for. Instead, that $750 billion in stolen money mostly went to subsidizing borrowers, meaning above all, the government, the federal government, and rich people who make up almost all private borrowing. This is incidentally why the Fed is a main driver of income inequality. It ain't free markets making the rich richer. It is the Federal Reserve. So what happens if you go to 3%? Simple. You jump that $750 billion up to roughly a trillion every year siphoned from all of us to government and the rich. It is hard to imagine today, but in the 126 years before the Fed, there was zero aggregate inflation in the U.S. Things literally cost the same generation after generation. There were fluctuations, yes, from wars or good or bad harvests or governments licensing wildcat banks as political favors, but inflation did not magically spawn from the economy year after year. Instead, we had real economic growth with generation after generation knowing their kids would be much better off than they were. Today, instead, we run on a treadmill debating how much to siphon from creators to destroyers, also generation after generation. How to fix it? Historically, there's the easy way and the hard way. The easy way is get rid of the Fed now and let banks stand on their own two feet without needing a standing bailout. The hard way is wait until it breaks anyway. So bad that voters get rid of the Fed and put the banks on their own two feet with a lot more pain in between. Twice now, the American people have abolished a central bank. Maybe that should go to three. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox. And I hope to see you on Twitter or Substack. We'll be watching. See you next time.